Hey everyone, I'm Seth. I'm one of the staff who gets to work here with the EU. And uh, if it's your first time here, can I just say welcome? We're really glad to have you. And if it's your not first time here, we're also really glad to have you. And I just want to say thank you for welcoming me. I don't usually get to hang out with you guys on Thursday. And I've loved being able to come and spend more time with you guys. Especially because you guys have been putting up with some pretty intense talks and topics. We've been looking at fear, facing our fears, seeing what Jesus has to say two weeks ago about the fear of other people, last week about the fear of failure, and this week, the great fear, the fear of death. Has anyone seen this statue down by the University Ovals? Anyone seen it? Yeah? Some nods? Anyone know who it's a statue of? Gilgamesh, yes! Gilgamesh, the epic of Gilgamesh is one of my favorite epics. It's 4,000 years old or older, and it tells the story of the great King Gilgamesh. And the theme is the fear of death. Because Gilgamesh, his friend, his best friend, who he had fought all these battles with and gone on great adventures, his best friend died. And then he felt terror for the first time. And he set out on the great quest for immortality. The fear of death is a fear that has spanned time and cultures. And I wonder when you first felt the fear of death. I, mean, I can remember. I was three, and it was dark, and I was afraid of death, and I ran into my mom and dad on their bed, and I told them, I'm afraid. What can I do? I wonder what you'd have said to me. What would you say to a three-year-old afraid of death? I reckon if our philosophy, if our way of life doesn't have anything to say to a three-year-old afraid of death, then it doesn't really have anything to say at all. Now this talk will be, by definition, morbid, right? We're talking about death. It's the universal, personal, inevitable dest destination from which there are no respawns and nobody escapes alive. And I don't know how you're feeling about death. I mean, apart from the news, which there's a lot of, I don't think we like to talk or think about death very much. Talking about death with your mates is kind of like talking about body weight or religion, you know? It's kind of awkward. We like to push death far away, as far away as possible, out of our lives, out of our streets, out of our homes, and into ambulances and hospitals and morgues. I mean, unlike the horrible situation going on in India or Brazil with COVID, or in Myanmar with the violence, or today even in um, Israel. You know, here in Australia, we don't have to see many dead bodies. Maybe you've never seen a dead body. Maybe you're not thinking or feeling about death. But for others of us, speaking about death may bring up deep sadness. Deep sadness in our past, sadness in our present, or fear for sadness in our future. I mean, someone you love may have died recently. This is a picture of my nana. Uh, when I was born in Ghana, my nana flew all the way out from Australia to visit me. And I still remember coming to visit her in her house in Eastwood. And she would chase my sister and I around um, her house uh, in a game we called Rabbit Stew. I was a rabbit. And, uh, you know, uh, we would... Um, oh, I remember when my wife and I were married... Uh, on the slopes of Port Hacking, and my nana was there as we walked down the aisle, gave us a big cuddle. And there she is cuddling uh, her great-grandson, Micah, my son, uh, just like she got to cuddle my daughter Josie. But last year, my nana died. 
And I was there in the hospital holding her hand and praying with her. And now she's gone. And I'm sharing, maybe oversharing about my Nana because this really matters to me, right? Like we can't leave discussions of death and the fear of death in the abstract out there. What would you say to someone at the graveside of someone they loved? Because if our philosophy of life, if our religion has nothing to say at the graveside, then it doesn't really have anything to say at all. And there are a lot of frustrating things that I've heard people say. I don't know about you, but there are plenty of voices out there which say that death is not terrifying, that death is beautiful, and you shouldn't be afraid. Here are some quotes. Walt Whitman, the famous poet, nothing can happen to me more beautiful than death. Nothing can happen more beautiful than death. Mary Elizabeth Fry, do not stand at my grave and weep. I'm not there. I do not sleep. I'm a thousand winds that blow. I am the diamond glints on snow. Do not stand at my grave and cry. I'm not there. I did not die. Or Steve Jobs. Death is very likely the single best invention of life. It's life's change agent. It clears out the old to make way for the new. Now, uh, you know, I don't know about you, but those quotes, though they're sometimes beautiful, feel good, motivational, actually, they don't help me. They make me a little angry. I mean, try telling a three-year-old that the fear of death is ridiculous. Try telling someone at the side of the grave of someone they love that death just clears out the old to make way for the new. Now, it seems you have to do a whole lot of mental gymnastics to avoid a ton of human experience to say that death isn't terrifying. To be honest, I resonate more with the quotes about death and the fear of death that say it's horrible and terrifying even if there's nothing we can do about it. For example, the atheist Oscar Wilde, he says, we see death is mighty lord of all and king and clown to ash and dust must fall. Or Bertrand Russell, the great atheist, brief and powerless is man's life. On him and all his race, the slow sure doom falls pitiless and dark. And all the labors of the ages, all the devotion, all the inspiration, all the noonday brightness of human genius are destined to extinction in the vast death of the solar system. Or Blaise Pascal, the last act is tragic, however happy all the rest of the play is. At the last, a little earth is thrown upon our head, and that is the end forever. I don't know about you, but I resonate more with the honesty of these statements. They seem truer to me than the platitudes that paint death in a positive light. I suppose they're acknowledging that death is terrifying, but that there isn't really anything to say at the side of the grave. But is that true? Like, is this true? And let's not pretend for a minute that it doesn't matter. It is a weighty claim to say that there is nothing to say, that there is no hope, that death has won the day. A dude called Peter Hitchens Put it this way, it's ridiculous to pretend that it's a neutral act to inform an infant that the heavens are empty, that the universe is founded on chaos rather than love, and that his grandparents on dying have ceased altogether to exist. I mean, is it true that there's nothing that can be done about death? Is there any hope beyond the grave? Is there something both hopeful and true to say to a three-year-old afraid of death, 
Is there something to say at the side of the grave? Today, I don't want to shy away from taking us right to the side of the grave, to what the Bible calls the king of terrors, the final enemy. There's this shocking verse in the Bible in the book of Ecclesiastes, which says that the heart of the wise is in the house of mourning, but the heart of fools is in the house of mirth bit complex, but what it's saying is that it's better to go to a funeral than a party. Because at a funeral, you might finally ask the big questions of life. Why do we die? Why doesn't God, if there is a God, do something about it? Why doesn't he free us from our fears? The great poet Tennyson said, thou madest man, he knows not why, he thinks he was not made to die. Well, it's one thing to think about death philosophically, sitting here at a sandstone university and musing about the matter, but it's something else entirely when there's no time to think, when death bursts into our world in danger and disaster, when the diagnosis is delivered, when the car crashes, when the stock market sinks every hope, when the wind blows and the water rises. And that is what happened in those days when Jesus took his students, his disciples to see. One day, He got into a boat with his disciples and he said to them, let's go across to the other side of the lake. So they set out and as they sailed, he fell asleep. And a windstorm came down on the lake and they were filling with water and were in danger. And they went and they woke him saying, master, master, we are perishing. Now, many artists have tried to capture this story, to paint it. And I must confess, I have no artistic ability but I'm told that it's really hard, it's really challenging. And today, I've got four paintings of this story to show you. Here are the first two. Can anyone tell me what the kind of obvious difference between these two paintings is? One has Jesus and one doesn't. Yeah, one has Jesus here in the intimate moment, and one, we can't see him, we can't see anyone. It's this massive, big picture. And our story starts there without the view on Jesus, in the big storm. The wind, the waves, the water bursting into the boat, a storm of such magnitude that it frightens even the fishermen, that whips up their terror and drives them to cry out, we are going to die. It seems as if in this storm, the storm of all storms has arrived, that death has arrived. And there's no time for the disciples to ask why. Why is one of the first questions that we ask when we face suffering and death? Why do we suffer? Why do we die? Of course, if there is no supernatural, then there can't be an ultimate reason for this storm. Not beyond the weather, the molecules rearranging with heat. There can be no reason for death when the bag of molecules that we are finally breaks down and our atoms disperse. No reason beyond biology and physics. But if there is a God, then the ultimate why question makes sense. Why this storm here and now? Why has death come in all of its terror? Well, the simple answer, however frustrating it is, we don't know, right? We don't know the answer to why this storm has come because the story doesn't tell us. In fact, the Bible suggests that most of the time, God doesn't give specific reasons for our suffering or for our deaths. Christians can be way too quick to try to give an answer to the specifics of suffering. Most of the time, we don't know the specifics of why. But the Bible does have something to say about the general reason for death. 
Have most people here heard of or maybe read uh, the story of Adam and Eve, the beginning of the Bible? It's a story that still influences our world today, and you can tell that whenever you look at the Apple logo, right? God created an ordered world, and he gave life to humanity. Not that humans had life in themselves. No, God gave humans life that needed to be sustained, right? By the beautiful and abundant trees that he planted in the garden. And by the fruit of two very special symbolic trees at the heart of the garden. Humans were to eat from the tree of life. The tree that God placed right in the middle of the garden to symbolize that God wanted to share his perfect, unending, eternal life with us forever. But they were, not to, they were not to eat from the other tree, the deadly tree. Not the tree of knowledge, right? That's the pop culture version. But the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. The tree of the knowledge of good and evil. It was a tree which symbolized the choice God gave humans to know good and evil by choosing it, by determining it. The question was this, would humans live in harmony with God and all of his creation, taking and enjoying his life forever and leaving the choice of determining good and evil to God? Or would they steal his forbidden fruit, rejecting the God who gave them life by choosing for themselves and bringing chaos into God's ordered world? God warned them not to eat He warned them that death would be the result. But then a serpent slithered into the garden. You know, in the Epic of Gilgamesh, Gilgamesh, that giant statue dude I showed at the start, he found the tree of life. But on the way back to his city with the tree of life, he got stinky, as guys do, and he decided to go for a swim in the river. And he, while swimming, left the tree of life with his clothes on the bank of the river. And then a snake slithered up and stole the tree of life. In the Epic of Gilgamesh, immortality was discovered by humans after a great quest. But in the Bible, immortality was always God's gift right from the beginning. In the Epic of Gilgamesh, humans lost immortality because of carelessness, negligence, stupidity. But in the Bible, humans lost immortality and must die because of evil. We listened to the lie that we could be God. We chose right and wrong for ourselves. We plunged the world into chaos. Humanity rejected God, the source of life, and was cut off from his life, banished to die outside the garden. This is our world and all of our lives, cut off from the life of God like flowers cut off at the stem. For a while, we look so lively, but in a sense, We're already dead, and death is catching up with us. This is the general answer that the Bible gives to the problem of suffering and death. This is why we die. In one sense, human rejection of God is the source of every storm, the source of this storm, of the water that filled the boat, of the danger, the wind howling, of the panic, of the perishing. But only only in the general sense, right? And I don't know about you, but I want to know more than the general, don't you? I mean, why this storm here and now? Why has God allowed my particular sufferings and your particular sufferings? 
Why COVID? Why the tension in Israel today? Why did he allow my fear of death when I was three years old and afraid? Most of the time, God doesn't say. And of course, there's a little bit more to say than that. And if this is a question that you have, I'd love to talk about it later. But for now, I just want to acknowledge how hard it is, how frustrating it is not to have an answer to our specific why questions. We really want answer, answers to our specific why questions. But hear me out. I don't reckon that the why question is the most important question. In the face of suffering and death, I reckon there are maybe four questions, four main questions that we want to ask God. And the first question is the why question. Why do we suffer? Why do we die? But the second, third, and the fourth question, I think they're the really important questions. God, are you able to do anything about this? God, do you care? God, will you do anything about this? Because if in the face of suffering and death that I could know that he's able, I could know that he cares, I could know that he's going to do something about it. But here, the disciples don't have time for the why question. They don't have time for any questions. They rush to Jesus and they wake him up just to tell him that they're dying. Master, master, we're perishing. Jesus, it's time to wake up and face the storm of storms. And you know what the story claims happened that day. One moment the wind is howling death and panic. One moment the disciples are yelling over the roar of the wind, yelling their fear of death. And the next moment, silence. Silence focused on Jesus. Now it's time for questions. And into the silence, two questions are asked. The first question is from Jesus. And it's surprising, and we'll come back to it in a moment. But let's start with the obvious question from the disciples. Who is this guy? Who is Jesus? Who do you think that Jesus is? The first time I took my son to the beach, took him down to Coogee Beach, and he was initially freaked out by the sound of the waves bursting on the beach, but then he got excited as he watched them, and he said, more, more, more. It was so cute, but it was kind of weird. I was like, oh, what do I do here? It's weird when people talk to the ocean, right? Uh, I don't think they should do that. It's weird, but it's even weirder when they listen, which is why the disciples ask, who is this that he commands even the winds and the water and they obey him? Well, in the Bible, the sea has a history. In the beginning, the book of Genesis tells us that the sea was good like everything else, made by God as he spoke creation into being. But along the way, somewhere along the way, as creation fell into chaos with human rejection of God, the sea became a great symbol for chaos and death. In fact, the sea became the symbol for the source of chaos. Out of the sea, there come serpents, monsters, dragons. So all throughout the Bible, God deals with the sea. Sometimes literally, like when he brought the people up out of Egypt and split the sea, but sometimes symbolically. Let me give you a few examples, just a few. By God's power, he stilled the sea. You, O God, still the roaring of the seas, the roaring of their waves, the tumult of the peoples. You rule the raging of the seas. When its waves rise, you still them. 
in the Bible. Only God has power, ultimate power over chaos and death. Only God can still the sea. But then along comes this guy called Jesus. And Jesus does what only God does. He forgives sins. He raises the dead. He sits on the throne of God. He stills the sea. You can see why the disciples ask their question with fear. The terrifying storm is gone, but now the story tells us they were afraid. And they marveled, saying to one another, Who then is this? I mean, nobody expected the storm to stop, right? They knew as well as we do, that's not normal. Nobody expected God to show up in a boat in Israel 2,000 years ago. Why would God, the creator, become a creature? Why would God, who was rejected by humans, become a human? And why, if Jesus was so powerful, if he really could raise the dead and still the sea, if he was God, then why did he die? Why would he die? Every historical source that mentions Jesus, whether it's in the Bible or external to the Bible, whether it's the Jewish source Josephus or the Roman sources Pliny and Tacitus, they all agree that Jesus was crucified and dead. And if Jesus was God and he had the power to still the sea, why did he die? Well, the good news for us today is that Jesus died to free us from death and the fear of death. One part of the Bible puts it this way. Since humans have flesh and blood, he, Jesus, shared in their humanity so that by his death he might break the power of him who holds the power of death. That is the devil. And free those who all their lives were held in slavery by their fear of death. Death came to enslave humans because we listened to the lie that we could be God, that we could live by deciding good and evil for ourselves. But Jesus came to die, to die in our place. That's why Jesus is on the boat, so that he could die on the cross, so that we wouldn't have to. The reason why God came was to die and to face our fear of death. There's a famous Christian thinker called Augustine. He said it this way very beautifully. Man's maker was made man, that he, the ruler of the stars, might nurse at his mother's breast, that the bread might hunger, the fountain thirst, the light sleep, the way be tired on its journey, that the truth might be accused of false witness, that strength might grow weak, that the healer might be wounded, that life might die. Jesus came to die so that you and I might live free from the fear of death. Because this is who Jesus is. He's a God who may not give us answers to our specific why questions, but who answers our other questions on the pain of death. Jesus shows how much God cares for us. Not by stopping a storm with his great power, but by leaving his power aside to die. God himself was willing to die in our place and to bear for all eternity the scars of his suffering. Jesus shows us how able God is to do something about death and our fears of death, not just by stealing a storm, but by rising from the dead. 
And if Jesus didn't rise from the dead, then how can we explain how fishermen frightened of death, who abandoned Jesus on the day that he died, how do we explain how these disciples would go to their deaths telling everyone that Jesus was alive? But Jesus doesn't just show us that God cares or that God is able to do something about death. No, he promises that one day he will do something once and for all. Jesus promises that one day he will stop the storm forever. You know, Jesus makes crazy promises that no one but God can make. For example, this is Jesus speaking. Check this one out. I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who believes in me shall never die. Wow. Or my favorite promise, my favorite promise is where we find out that even though the sea has a history in the Bible, it does not have a future. Jesus speaks to his disciple John and he paints a picture for him of what heaven will be like in the final book of the Bible. And this is what we find out about what is not in heaven. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. God will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. For the former things have passed away, and night will be no more. Seven things will not be in heaven. Seven is the great symbolic number in the Bible, and we are told the first and the last thing are the, symbol, the symbols, the great symbolic things, the chaotic sea and the evil night. And in the middle there, death and mourning and crying and pain, all the former things gone forever. Who is Jesus? Well, Jesus is the one who's answered my questions. He's the one who's taken away my fear of death. Some of you came in a bit later and missed me share the story of how when I was three years old, I was afraid of death and I ran to my parents' bed and they told me, I don't remember the exact words they told me, it's a long time ago, but they told me that Jesus beat death. He died so I don't have to. And he rose up out of the grave so that if I trust him, if my faith is in him, then I will live with him forever. I was only three, but that was the day that I first put my faith in Jesus. And I've learned a lot about everything since then, but my faith is still in Jesus. What about you? Is your faith in Jesus? What would it take? What would it take for you to put your faith in Jesus? Well, speaking about faith brings up the issue of faith and the first surprising question that Jesus asks, right? Jesus asks, where is your faith? Where is your faith? I want you to chat with the person next to you or at your tables, and I want you to think about that question, where is your faith? I want you to think of these three questions. In the story, when did the disciples have faith? When did they not have faith? And what difference would faith have made? When did they have faith? When didn't they have faith? What difference would it have made? All right, chat for one minute with the person next to you. I'll put the story on the screen to help you. All right, we should probably come back together. I hate interrupting the great discussion going on. Um, but what do you guys reckon? When do you reckon the disciples had faith? If at all. 
when they obey Jesus at the end? Mm-hmm. Maybe. When they go into the boat with him? Yeah, when they go into the boat with him. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's right. I think that we will see much more obedience. But here, it's at the start, especially in our story, where they listen to what Jesus says. Like, why? It's a bit of an interesting thing. Jesus has been teaching and doing amazing things on this side, where their families are, some of them are married. And then Jesus is like, let's go to the other side. Huh, don't know why. You have to read on to find out why. But uh, they listen, and they jump on the boat. Okay, when did the disciples not have faith? When they say, Master, Master, we're going to drown. Yeah. think about any other possibility. Yeah, that's right. Exactly. When the storm comes, their faith flees. The storm comes with its wind and its waves, all the pressing evidence that we are going to die. And they allow that evidence to take away their confidence in Jesus' words, that they're going to go across. Right? Jesus says, get in the boat, we're going to the other side. And they say, exactly right, they say, we're going to die. Other side, death, pretty different, right? Okay, what difference would faith have made? Well, let me tell you what difference faith would not have made. Faith would not, it could not have stopped the storm, right? Faith wouldn't have done it, it couldn't have done it, because Jesus stopped the storm without their faith. Their faith was already long gone when the storm was stopped and their safe passage was secured. Faith in the Bible has no power of its own, right? It only has power depending on who you put your faith in. Faith can't steal a storm or secure safe passage. Only Jesus can do that. So what difference would faith have made? Well, even though the storm was impressive, compelling, and terrifying reason to think that they were going to die, they actually had a better reason to think they would make it to the other side. Jesus. Jesus was in the boat, and he'd given them his words. Let's go across. Jesus told them that we're going to go across, and if they trusted him they wouldn't have been afraid. You see that Jesus and faith in Jesus is the answer to the fear of death. I promised you four pictures of the storm stilling. Here are the final two. This is Rembrandt's painting of the storm that day. Uh, again, I have no artistic ability, but one art critic who I listened to, he reckons that this is the perfect painting because it captures simultaneously the big storm and the intimate moment. And one way Rembrandt does that is by painting himself into the picture, right? There's Jesus, and then Peter, and then John, and bam! What are you doing there, Rembrandt, you 17th century painting man? What are you doing in this painting? Well, Rembrandt painted himself into the picture as a symbol that he put his faith in Jesus, that he got onto the boat with Jesus, that in his life, with whatever storms would come, and ultimately with a great storm of death, that he was on the boat with Jesus. Friends, if you haven't gotten onto the boat with Jesus, if you haven't believed, trusted, put your faith in Jesus, then you need to. There is no one else who has words of life. Jesus died to deliver us from death and the fear of death. And if you want to make it through death, then you need to believe this and to get on the boat with Jesus. Final picture. It's a little bit weird. In the early church, they used the symbol of a boat on stormy seas to symbolize God's people still in the world sailing for heaven. Jesus is there at the helm. And if you're a Christian, 
and you're afraid of death today, the question is, where's your faith? Jesus has said, we are going across to where the sea will be no more. Don't let the evidence of the virus and the cemetery, the danger or the diagnosis, don't let the terrors around you make you forget who Jesus is and his precious promises to you. Jesus is the God who cares for you, who's able to do something about my grandmother's death, who promises that whoever, even a three-year-old child, whoever believes in him will live even though they die. And maybe the most amazing thing about this story is that if you're on the boat with Jesus, then even if your faith runs away in a moment of panic, as long as you're on the boat with Jesus, crying out to him in your fear, then you will make it to the other side because of who Jesus is. He's the one who cares, who's able, and who will do something about our fear of death forever. So where is your faith?